had you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> Somebody's got a case of the Mundus. <laughs> January 20th, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I'm your co-host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 18-year young adult survivor of brain cancer. Andy Goodman could not be with us again tonight. She is going through some challenges, and we wish her all the love and good hope and great stuff in the world. God bless you, Andy Goodman. We're here for you. It's that Okay. That's 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer? Under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world. One chemo infusion at a time. I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time entertaining listeners on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio Talk, or listening to the archives on stupidcancershow.org. All right, tonight's show, What the Hell is Immunotherapy? Join us as we welcome leadership from the Cancer Research Institute. Brian Brewer, the Director of Marketing, and Alexis Feldman, Chair of the CRI's Young Philanthropist. We'll find out more about what that means. He talked about the latest on immunotherapy and the progress being made in the sector. Survivor Spotlight on our friend, advocate, blogger, Dan Duffy, co-founder of the Half Fund. And I'm Maureen Sweet, newly minted manager of programs and operations here at Cubic Cancer. Look at and her go. I will be live tweeting throughout this broadcast at Chemodex. So send me your questions and feedback at any time at hashtag SCRadio. All righty. Well done. You passed your first test as your new... Uh with your new title. <laughs> oh, look at that. Look at me. Exactly. And should go into the West. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Anyway. Uh-huh. So anyway, it's uh, it's good to be back. How is everybody? Good. Happy Martin Luther King Day, folks. Happy Martin Luther King Day. We forgot for to sure. take a day off. Whoops. We don't get days off here. No. We don't do that. Cancer never stops. Yeah, cancer never stops. That was the musings of uh, Mr. Uh, Hang on, Brian. I lost your last name. Brian Brewer. Brian here. Brewer, thank You're you. Welcome, Brian. I hey. closed my window. Yeah, we have uh, the benefit of having lots of people here in the studio tonight. We've got a packed house. Uh, our 
our uh, our key guests tonight, Alexis uh, Feldman and Brian Brewer, are here in studio. Good evening. Hello. Hello. They'll be joining us for the hot spot in 30 minutes. And apparently they're not as important guests. Uh, <laughs> Melinda Hood from Stupid Cancer New York City, Kevin yeah, Hansen from San Diego, and Brandon Lee, founder of Their Story is Our Story, joining us all on the couch. Yes, welcome, guys, to the show. They're all super cool. Yep. In any case, um, I wanted to uh, just you know kick off the show with a couple of our usual discussion points. I was in um, Baltimore, the fabulous quote-unquote, city of Baltimore. <laughs> it's lovely. They've it, got a harbor. It got better. <laughs> right. Was it sick? <laughs> was, it, was it sick that it got better? <laughs> and uh, I was there at Johns Hopkins. They are convening a uh, a grant from PCORI, which is the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute. And what PCORI does is they give major grants, they're government-funded, and they give grants to major cancer institutions and other healthcare systems to build um, systems that help doctors engage more effectively with patients. So we spend a lot of time on simple things like what kind of bar graph do people like to use more often, but to more com- <laughs> but to more complicated things like what level of EMR engagement should patients have when they're talking to the doctors, and should there be a tablet-only version that had to deal with age restrictions and insurance issues and how do payers fit into it. People so, who are still on AOL dial-up. Yeah, <laughs> with, with their, um, with their uh, what's that, uh, their iVillage pages or whatever. So what was the bar graph verdict, though? I'm curious. Line graphs mm. are much more effective. <laughs> and like the stock market. Then pie charts? Yeah, oh, then yeah. pie charts. If the line is like pointing somewhere, like you can the, obviously see if it's For some reason, down, everyone right. at any any educational level gets the stock market. Up and to the right. Ooh. Yes, exactly. They yep. just get it. So, yep. at, you know, it wasn't a lot of discussion mm-hmm. about the whether it's the <laughs> up is better and down is worse, but it went from that to everything much mm-hmm. more complicated. But it was very interesting to be a part of it and as the patient advocate in the room. I think the, the most interesting part for me was that when they showed the actual survey they showed to the patients, it was written by academics and not for people in, like, you know, high school Right. which is the target market of people who are they're doing this project for, is people with a high school diploma. Mm-hmm. So I wrote, who wrote this? The doctor's like, I did. Yes, you did. <laughs> this should be written really? for a six-year-old. Mm-hmm. Well, so. enough about you. What about you? Your, your article in oh PM360. Yeah. more things. Yeah. Well, no, let's go to the Serum Committee Retreat because that's Maureen and we have people yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. So Hannah and, and Melinda who are here. Yeah, I have a new title. I'm cool. Um, so Hannah and Melinda who are here are two of the ten wonderful members of the OMG Cancer Summit Steering Committee. Um, and they hail from all over the country. A bunch of them are from New York. We also got people from the Inland Empire, which is apparently part of L.A., and I never really knew that, um, San Diego, North Carolina, and they were all in the same room this Saturday talking about the OMG Summit and all the cool things we're going to be doing. Um, so we had a great time talking about everything from, like, recruitment and, like, our welcome committee um, to how we're going to be, like, managing our Instagram and our Twitter uh, Melinda is planning trivia night, and she knocked it out of the park last year. So we talked about that. A lot of really cool things we got lined up: trivia, bowling, pool party, a lot of cool things. I don't know why you, listener, are not registered for OMG yet. Right. So Listen. do it now. OMG2014.org. Yeah, come to Vegas. Come yeah. to Vegas. Hang out with us. We're kind of cool. Yeah. But it was great. I'm really proud. For those of you that are not aware, the OMG Steering Committee is the governing volunteer body that serves the uh, at the mercy. <laughs> of the staff. <laughs> um, yeah, and and vice versa. Yes, exactly. It is a mutually exclusive mercy relationship. 
but uh, it was convened in 2012 when we moved the conference to more of a destination model, and it is it takes a year and a small army of people to pull up the conference. It so does. you guys it do does. amazing work, and thank you so much for doing that. And uh, yeah, I got I got some random props this week because I published an article, my first published article in uh, Pharma Marketing Magazine, PM360, about the sorry state of affairs that exists between uh, the pharmaceutical industry and the patient advocacy community. Welcome to the club. Yes. I was uh, what customer zero of an article. And that uh, regulatory uh, was a really good thing at the time because it curtailed like egregious spending and payola and, and, and unethical behavior, but now it's a barrier to uh, outcomes. And uh, there's such a limitation in how pharma can engage with patients now because of the restrictions of influence and, and, and influence marketing, whatever. And uh, I forget the link. The link is on, uh, go to PM360 online, and we'll put the link in the, in the chat room for a second. Yep, and I'll tweet it in yeah. a minute. Um, but anyway, it's a good read. I encourage you to take a look at it if you work in the industry. And even if you're just a patient, um, I did not write it for sixth grade. I did write it for, like, college-level <laughs> reading because I don't know how to write that way. Cause my That's brain why I only up. got through the first paragraph. Yes, Kenny, Kenny was done. After like the, the title page, I saw your picture and smiled. <laughs> All right. Well, anything else? I think that's it on the the top of the show banter. Top of the show banter. Time to go to the first guest. All right. <laughs> Are you sure about that, Kenny? Have you been drinking? Not history at all. History would suggest. Yeah. You sure about that? All right. In the Survivor Spotlight tonight, our good friend Dan Duffy, co-founder of the Half Fund, an award-winning film and video producer, as well as a prolific blogger on Huffington Post, specifically the Generation Y young adult section. He's a father, husband, and a young adult testicular cancer survivor. Please welcome to the show one of my favorite bloggers of all time, Dan Duffy. Sir. so much that I'm your first guest. And it's funny you say prolific blogger. It got to the point last year where HuffPost said, you should really stop blogging so much. Really? They told you that? <laughs> yeah. I had, to, I had to pull back a little bit, and that's wow. all right. You are quite prolific. I have to really commend you on the, the, the quality and the quantity of content that you produce. Oh, I appreciate You know, I, uh, I've learned a lot, and the older I get, I'm 41 now, and the older I get, the more I realize I have to say about it, and the more I realize I kind of want to share. Um, because, you know, with, with age comes wisdom, and a lot of the things when I was 29 and going through cancer, I didn't actually realize at the time. And it's only kind of, you know, been away from it for, God, 12 years now that uh, some of this stuff is just coming to light. So as long as I, as long as I keep having new insights, and, and they come from the weirdest places. But as long as they keep coming, I'll keep writing about them and, and, you know, trying to share what I know. I think your new band name should be Shamed by HuffPo. <laughs> that you're too well, prolific. You know, it's I, me actually <laughs> writing a blog for the HuffPo, is, it's like a blind pig fighting a truffle. I mean, I'm not really quite <laughs> sure how it happens. Love it. But uh, but once they gave me the go ahead, um, kind of the floodgates open, and it's been uh, it's been lovely. And I really have to thank you guys because honestly, the stupid cancer folks, like all of you there, um, have honestly over quintupled 
uh, my readership, you guys specifically. So I cannot thank you. Well, you always get a good response on the wall, so keep them coming. Well, you're right. Well, you, I, pre I appreciate that. You write so authentically, though. I mean, it's like what everyone is thinking in their head. You actually say. Well, I used to work for uh, I used to work for a syndicated radio show before I ever got into film and video. And uh, one of the things that they always kind of hammered into your head was uh, write like you talk. So I, I'm not trying to come up with, you know, flowery language or anything. It's, it's all sort of stream of consciousness. Now, I'm a punctuation nut, so I have way too many commas in there. <laughs> but, you know, apart from that, kind of what you read is what you get. So, and, and I really don't know another way to write. But, I mean, just some of the titles, and we're going to get to your story in a second, but The Accidental Philanthropist, The Happy Indignity of Cancer Survival, Suck at Cancer, Being Angry at God for Cancer, Don't Say This to a Cancer Patient, um, the key to solving absolutely everything, how to explain evil to your children, cancer sucks by a helmet. I mean, you're, it's really, it's controversial, it's, it piques your interest, and it's, it's very disruptive. And, and, I mean, take some ownership. You, you, you do a really great job. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, the reason why I, I, I sort of don't hold, I, I don't pull punches with cancer is because cancer didn't pull punches with me, and, and it really, really made me mad. Um, like when I, when I found out, you know, that I actually had cancer, I never got mad at God. I never got mad at, you know, why me? I was mad at the cancer because it was causing a lot of physical pain and sort of turning it into a personal thing and making it a bully. And I'm not saying it works for everyone, but it really worked for me. Like once I had an adversary that I could go after, that, that made things a lot easier. So let's get back to 2000. Millennium starts. You're, you're just living your life, living large. And then what happened? Well, for about six months, I had experienced, like, some really, really bad back pain, and I'd gone to a chiropractor. I'd even gotten an epidural steroid injection, and, and, and I, no one could figure out what was wrong with me. And one day, I was just trying to stretch out my back, and I felt something move in my abdomen, and that something felt like a golf ball, and it turned out it was the tip of the iceberg because if you would have taken out the tumor that had been growing up from lefty, you could have molded it into the size of, like, a big cantaloupe. Wow. It was huge. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I knew it was serious from, you know, how long the, the medical field can take, you know, like you get a doctor's appointment. I went from finding the lump to starting chemotherapy, and that included getting a porticat installed in two weeks. I think that's a record. How did that happen? Did. How did well, it go so it quickly? Is, I had a good doctor <laughs> who, who saw this and said, we have got to take care of this fast otherwise it's going to take care of you and wait so I, so when you did i, I can't even I'm, I'm stumbled that that it took that that short of a period of time because that's the opposite we typically hear from people in our age group who was the first doctor you saw about this a general practitioner uh, it was. It was. A, it was a, actually the first doctor I saw was a doc in the box. You know, like one of those urgent care docs. Because um, I didn't have a doctor. I'm 29, and I'm very, very typically not just 29, but very typically male. There's nothing wrong with me, so I don't have a doctor. I don't get physicals. Um, but when I found this out, my girlfriend at the time, who became my wife, she was in pharmacy school, and she said, "Look, you are going to have that looked at on Monday." And uh, and I went there, and the guy felt the lump, and he gave me a, a couple of uh, doctors to call. And I'll tell you what, one thing very, very scary happened, and I hope that 
Um, anybody who actually answers calls for a doctor is listening to this. The first doctor I called, I talked to the receptionist, and she said, the doctor's not seeing anybody for six weeks. And I said, I understand that, but I found a very hard lump in my abdomen. And she paired it again. I'm sorry, but the doctor's not seeing any for six weeks. And I got really scared. It was probably the most scared I'd been the entire time. And then I called the other doctor that this doc in the box had, had given me, and she said, doctor's not seen anybody for a month. And I just blurted out, oh, my God. And she picked up on it and said, okay, tell me what's wrong. And I said, I found a lump in my abdomen. And she just went, hold. And two minutes later, she gets back on. She says, come in tomorrow. So, wow. yeah, I mean, you, you, I know. It's very, very important for caregivers to actually listen to what's going on. It's, you know, I know you have to be a gatekeeper, you know, at certain times. But in other times, you got to be a human. Well, I'm going to commend you. That, that's real persistence there to get the humanity out of the person who's in charge of not connecting you to people. Well, deep down, I, I honestly feel this, unless you're just so jaded by it. I mean, like, we we all have our humanity somewhere. And, um, you know, sometimes it's it's in a little phrase. Like, I didn't, I didn't persist with the second doctor. She just heard, like, a natural emotion, and she picked up that something was wrong. And you know what? I mean, we, we all go through that. We all sometimes just go through the motions and, and, and say what we're supposed to say or toe the company line. But then if we just take a moment to, to see the humanity uh, of what we're all going through, because we're all going through something, um, that's usually when good things happen. So, you know, something good happened. So let's talk to your background. You have a history in film, TV, radio. Um, you have a voice for radio, we can tell right now. And you won all these awards, and it's it's basically your passion. How did that change when you were diagnosed, and how has it now come back to help you help others? Well, I say I'm, I'm an accidental philanthropist, and, and actually someone coined an even better one that that uh, that knows me, and he called me. He goes, you know, you're more of an accidental activist because activism encompasses so much more. And uh, and what I wanted to do was I realized after I. I had gone through my world with a cancer at the end of it. I was just like, and what the hell happened? Uh, and it bothered me that there were so many reactive things to it. And, and, and I said to myself, I would like to help people, um, you know, avoid some of the pitfalls that I went through. And then, and then I thought about, okay, well, how can I do it with what I do for a living? And, uh, and that's when my partner, Joe Farmer, and I came up with the Half Fund. And, and basically, it's a really simple premise. The Half Fund just basically looks to fund projects. We, we raise money and then we fund projects that spread cancer education, but we do it through what we know, like documentaries and, and, and movies and, and even books. Like, imagine a kid's book about, you know, a relative going through cancer. I mean, it, it could be, it could help so many kids um, or even music. So we wanted to use what we knew and uh, and we just kind of figured out how to do it. And, and the way the half fund is set up is whoever gets money from us um, has to split their profits in half. It's as simple as that. You can you can still make a living doing what you're doing, but you can't profit from it. Half goes to any cancer charity of the artist's choice, and half comes back to us where we give it away again to other artists. So it's it's kind of a pay it forward and a kind of a self-regenerating fund. So at what point in your in your journey, I hate that word you know, post-cancer, did you actually make a conscious decision to start a charity when you may or may not have had to do that, but you felt the need to? 
what what we did, I had originally just kind of written a screenplay as a bit of a cathartic thing to kind of, you know, sort of get my head together, so to speak. And, of course, it sucked because every first screenplay sucks. Um, but, you know, there was enough of a nugget in there to say, you know, keep going. So we kept going, and uh, originally we are like, okay, no one's going to make a cancer film. Of course, this is before 50-50. Um, so we decided to see if we could get a big name to help with us. Um, and honestly, the one name that really helped me, uh, unbeknownst to them, when I was diagnosed with the American Cancer Society, their website was phenomenal, and I got to look up every drug that I was going to be on, and um, I, I found resources that I need. So I called them. Uh, just flat out send them a cold call and say, hey, we're thinking about making a film, maybe sharing our profits. And they said, we don't do anything like that, but, you know, send us an email anyway. And that was like at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Two and a half hours later, I got a call back from the local office. And they said, oh, did you get the email? And they said, no, we're going way better than that. We thought it had merit. We sent it to division, which is regional. They thought it had merit. They sent it to national. And now Angela Hayes from national wants to talk to you. We literally cleared the entire bureaucracy of the American Cancer Society in two and a half hours. And at that point, my partner and I realized this is bigger than a movie. So that, that's when we kind of started figuring out, okay, how could we take it further? And, uh, and that's how we came up with the Half Fund. So tell us about Kevin Smith. <laughs> well, I could actually tell you more about his producer, John Gordon, who is far more prolific than Kevin. Uh, something very interesting happened. Kevin Smith wanted to make a film called Red State a few years ago, and no one would help him do it, not even the Weinstein brothers, because it was just kind of a taboo topic. So Kevin wrangled together $4 million bucks from investors, and he brought it to Sundance. And um, he, he shows the movie, and everybody's just waiting to bid on this, because not only is it a horror film, but it's a Kevin Smith horror film, so they knew that they were just going to make Fatty Bank, whoever got it. And Smith decided that instead of selling it to a distributor, he was going to take it on the road. So he went to, I want to say, like 30 cities, and the second city was Chicago. So my partner Joe and I decided to drive up to the Harris Theater in Chicago to see if, if we could just kind of tell him what was going on and, um, or, or just kind of get in front of him because he's a Vancouver film grad like I'm a Vancouver film grad. Or, I'm sorry, he didn't graduate. He went there. So um, we ended up via Twitter getting a hold of his producer named John Gordon. Now, John is a guy who just won a Golden Globe for uh, American Hustle, and he went for Silver Linings Playbook last year, and he's about our age. He's, he's like early, mid-50s. Um, and we ended up meeting John in the lobby of the Harris Theater, uh, and we met for like 20 minutes, just, just kind of standing around. And, uh, like, all of a sudden, there's all these people kind of crowding around us, and they're kind of looking at us going, who the hell are they, talking to the guy who came up with Project Greenlight. And, um, and John has kind of kept his eye on us. Like, we, we haven't really been ready to to approach him to work together, but um, he's got Kevin's ear and he's got a lot of ears. And um, he, uh, he, he's kind of kept an eye on us. It's, it's been nice. Like, uh, I'll give you an example. He's one of the good guys. Um, at the Golden Globes, American Hustle won the Globe, and I immediately just popped on and shot him an email saying, John, congratulations, great time. And, uh, you know, good luck with everything. He got back to me the next day. I mean, this guy's an Uber producer. And, uh, and, and he still remembers us little guys. So, 
you know, once you have those kind of people around you, and it's not just people of Gordon's ilk, but it's people of everyone's ilk. Once you have people that support you, I mean, like I, I could probably guess with Stupid Cancer, yes, you've got some big names who love what you do, but you affect so many people. And, and as long as we continue to do that, we know we're doing the right thing and we're on the right path. And so, sorry to be so wordy, wordy about that one. No, no, that's the right answer. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I, we, I've been in this for a very long time when there was really just nothing a few years ago. And today there is a major industry around our issues and our cause. And, you know, I always go back and commend Huffington Post for having the courage to launch Generation Y. We actually had them on the show last week to talk about that. So uh, we're sort of oh, all products right of each other. And what, what would you say, now that you're kind of a cancer celebrity, what would you say the new the responsibilities are on your end? If I assume you're getting emails and questions and comments now. Uh, wh what's your role at this point? You know what? Honestly, this is so bizarre because um, this, this is what the, our next blog is going to be about, and I still have to write it, but it's either going to be you know tonight or tomorrow. I was watching a film with uh, my sons. We, uh, we, my wife and I have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old, and we were watching a movie called The Croods, uh, which is a really good little animated tale. And there was one point where it looked like the dad was going to die. Um, so he was by himself, and he's in a cave, and for the first time in the whole movie, he's actually happy. So he starts cave painting, and he's cave painting like all these things about his family and about all these amazing things. And all of a sudden, seeing that, it just hit me. He's telling his story because he realizes his story is what's going to live on long past him. We have got to tell our stories, and, and I know it's hard for a lot of people. And I know that a lot of people only can focus on the negative of their stories. But in order to be able to help those who are coming after us and to honor those who came before us, we have got to share our stories. If for no other reason, if it can help just one person have an easier time with cancer, you've already made the world a better place. And to me, it is literally as simple as that. Tell your story, no matter how painful it will be. If it takes you a year or five years to work up the courage to do it, you have time, but 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 don't go silent the rest of your life. Share with the world what you know. So, uh, how's your health now? My health is great. Um, our boys started taking Taekwondo about eight months ago, and it's stupidly expensive. But they uh, they offer if two family members are doing it, the whole family can do it. So I'm actually now, I've been doing it for six months, and I'm in better shape now than I've ever been. Um, I, uh, I go every June and uh, have a lovely little thing that I call the Baltra sound. So with the right one being still remaining, uh, they check that out with an ultrasound once a year and, and uh, just some blood tests. But you know what? Life is good. Life's really good. I'm actually starting to lose a little weight, and I, uh, I kind of couldn't be happier about it. So a quick question about fertility, and then I want to talk about Canada as our neighbor to the north. Um, did you have children sure. when you were diagnosed? No, I did not. Um, I, I was really blessed. Now, I went to, uh, I went to Banks um, the day that I was supposed to start, and I've written a blog about this um, somewhere on the HuffPo, and it is uh, – 
it was a really, really horrendous experience because, you know, I mean, when you're a guy and you're a teenager and stuff, I mean, like, the wind blows a certain direction and, and you know, you're good to go. Whereas, like, when your lineage depends on this, um, it, it kind of ups the stakes pretty severely. And I was one of the 40% of males who are not able to finish while at the bank. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's going through that and realizing, you know, I was so ashamed and I can't believe like I failed at this, but, but then later on when I realized that a lot of guys are not able to do this. And then when I actually just said to myself, look, I'm, I've got to talk about it, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to share these stories, I'm going to get naked and, and share them all. Then, um, I, uh, I, you know, just kind of put that out there, so to speak. And, and, um, as far as the fertility, I got really lucky. I took, uh, I took a test. I had 20 rounds of chemo in 11 weeks and I went to a urologist and took a test and, uh, it turns out a third of what was remaining survived. And that was enough to have two boys. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. It, it, it is amazing. And you know, like you, uh, you have like milestones, you know, in cancer, you know, and it really is a journey and, and the journey never ends. I mean, like your whole life's a journey. Um, but you have like milestones where you really have okay, like I'm a year out of cancer or two years out, et cetera. One of my biggest milestones was walking into, uh, we have Washington university here in St. Louis. And, uh, I walked into the cryo lab, um, about two years after our, 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 second child was born i said i'm not going to be renewing um my my freezing so go ahead and get rid of it and i remember walking out of there and that was kind of the last cancer chapter for me so to speak and then of course everything started back up when we started the half fund all right final question here you are in canada you have a very different healthcare system you know we're going through our Actually, own um, go ahead yeah are you you're in vancouver correct no, I, I lived in Vancouver. I'm actually in St. Louis. Oh, okay. Well, then you are you've dealt with all of this in uh, in America, then. Yeah, I have. Oh, wow. Okay, so I have more power to you for not being Canadian anymore. <laughs> Vancouver's a great town, man. What time did you move to? How old were you when you moved to uh, St. Louis? Uh, you know, I, I grew up most of my life here. I was actually born in Ireland in Dublin, uh, but I grew up most of my life here, and I worked in radio here. And then in 99, I moved to Vancouver for a year and a half and went to film school. And uh, oh, such a great town, great friends. It was it was lovely. Um, so what did you want to ask about the Canadian health system? Because that's no, interesting. I was just going to ask you, I, we had a... I, we had the wrong information that you were in Vancouver. I just—I was going to ask you what we no asked all of our Canadian guests, which is, was the, was the experience different with in, insurance and whatnot? And the fact that you were, you know, diagnosed and treated within like two weeks is very unusual, but something we do actually hear out of Canada. You know what? I have my own feelings about healthcare in Canada because I had not a whole lot of experience, but. I've done a lot of documentary work on healthcare in America, and in fact, we did a two-part series on access to healthcare, not just from the patient's perspective, but we did one from the doctor's perspective as well. And the one thing that I kind of learned, and, and I have a lot of friends um, who will back me up, and some who, of course, just say Canada's the greatest in the world, but if you are in trouble, Canada's healthcare system is second to none. They are unbelievable. 
if you're in pain, it can suck. And and there and there's a and there's a big difference between the two. Now, the one thing I'll say about pain, and, and I think anybody who's really gone through a painful cancer will agree with me, there is nothing more debilitating than pain. When pain changes your life, it alters everything. It alters how you get out of bed in the morning. It alters how you eat. It alters everything. And I don't think people put as much stock into as they should about pain. So that's that's my take on Canada, and I know I probably pissed off a lot of Canadians with that. Nice. Um, we don't really care about them anyway. I, I, I so. will say this though: they're, they're second to none uh, if you're in trouble. They're amazing. Okay, we've been speaking with Dan Duffy, co-founder of the Half Fund, award-winning film and video producer, young adult testicular cancer survivor, and blogger on the Huffington Post. You can learn more about him at thehalffund.org and on Twitter at at thehalffund. Is that correct? Absolutely. All right, Dan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Good luck to you. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it so much. All right, Dan Duffy, everyone. All right, let's get to the news, Kenny. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Well, thank you, Matthew. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we certainly don't want you missing out. We have Northbrook, Illinois, Gainesville, Florida, San Diego, California, Riverside, California, Rochelle Park, New Jersey, Denver, Colorado, Anchorage, Alaska, and Evanston, Wyoming. My God, that's a lot of events. Just a few. Wow, very impressive. And if you want to start a uh, your own meetup, we would encourage you to go to supercancer.org slash meetup, which is a thing I think I made that work, and if it didn't, we'll make it work. Anyway, as we check it, live on the air. <laughs> All right, folks, Vegas time. Registration for the 7th annual OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults is open for business. Come to the largest young adult cancer conference in the world and join 500 of your fellow young adult patients, survivors, and caregivers for an epic three-and-a-half-day event that will change your life. Visit omg2014.org to learn more. And don't forget about the OMG Players Club, which is your path, to a $600 travel scholarship just by fundraising for Stupid Cancer. It's always a good time to stock up on your Stupid Cancer gear. We've got all new products and styles to choose from. Polar Vortex, be damned, you'll stay nice and warm in a Stupid Cancer hoodie. Surf on over to StupidCancerStore.org and be proud, wear Stupid Cancer. And that is your Stupid Cancer News. Okay, today's show, or tonight's show rather... We're talking about huge breakthroughs that have started in cancer treatment over the last couple of years. Perhaps you've heard about them. It's called immunotherapy. We've got two guests here from the Cancer Research Institute, also known as uh, CRI, based here in New York. Joining us tonight are Brian Brewer, the Director of Marketing Communications, and Alexis Feldman, Chair of the CRI's Young Philanthropist Council. CRI is the first nonprofit founded in the 1950s, I heard, to work on the issue of cancer immunotherapy and for the last 60 years have been driving research and innovation. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Brian and Alexis. It was a, a pause. Very anyway, dramatic effect. Dramatic pause, yes, exactly. Hi, guys. Good <laughs> evening. You've been very patient waiting there on the radio. I like the show. I love it. Yeah? 
Yeah, that was the last speaker was that was very very interesting. Dan's very cool. Yeah, he's very. I have to check out his HuffPo blog. Now. Yeah, yeah. He, he's he, the fact that he told me that they were telling him to to cut down on <laughs> on his postings. Yeah, he's he's pretty prolific. So anyway, welcome to the Thank show. You. We're very yeah. we've done shows on this before, but not of this nature. Uh, genomics, immunotherapy, human genome project, that kind of stuff. Very very exciting to our patient population, our mm-hmm. listeners, because it is the future, yeah. mm-hmm. where it's, you know, I, I like to talk about the, I made up a word, which I do, the D-body partification of cancer, where it's not about where your cancer is, it's about your genes and how do you make yourself more of a, uh, a Gattaca character, you know, to have your body deal with. No one knows Gattaca. I, I do. All right, Ethan Hawke, <laughs> Gattaca, okay. Yeah. And, um, you know, that this is where science is headed and gone are the days of even clinical trials or double-blind studies where this is really how we're going to deal with every person individually based on their genes and their body. Is that correct? Um, yeah, that's, that's correct. That's not necessarily immunotherapy, though. I mean, immunotherapy is using your body's own immune system to fight cancer, and there's right. some genetic components well, to that's the understanding. Part. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, you're, like turning, your, you're turning your body into a, a, a secret weapon against mm-hmm. cancer. You know, with a vaccine or or some something like that. Well, there was something in the news recently how they used the HIV vaccine mm. against the against the own its own body to cure this young child of of leukemia. Or yeah, something. yeah, that's the story of Emily Whitehead. She was um, she's a Pennsylvania um, girl, and uh, she was six years old and was in the end stages of um, acute lymphocytic leukemia, and uh, it's a type of blood cancer. It's actually a cancer of the immune system. Um, so. What they did was they took the HIV virus and they used it to genetically engineer her own T cells. So they didn't inject her with the HIV. They treated the T cells outside of her body, then grew them, and then reinfused them back into her body. And uh, within days, her cancer was completely cleared. And now she's, you know, she's almost two years out, and she's happy and healthy. And this this made huge headlines on the on the New York Times, for instance, and Wall Street Journal. Um, and the Cancer Research Institute is now working with Dr. Carl June, who is who is one of the scientists at University of Pennsylvania who helped develop that therapy. Which is very exciting. The, the idea of us being able to help our own bodies, you know, be more effective at protecting our own bodies from our own bodies yeah. is, is very new, but it's not really new because you guys have been around for six decades. Yeah. So what was... What was that like? What was the science in the 1950s around this? Well, in the science in the 1950s was still focused on understanding the basic components of the immune system. You know, they, they were still discovering different cells and different components of this. In fact, they're still discovering new things. I mean, there's a lot that we don't yet know uh, about the immune system. We certainly know an awful lot more than we did back in 1950. Um, so then over the, over the next 60 years, the mission of Cancer Research Institute was to apply the best scientific thinking out there to take the knowledge that we were learning about the immune system and then applying it to the cancer problem. And it turns out they discovered that cancer and the immune system have a very tight relationship, um, each acting on the other. And, and they've taken this knowledge and turned this into therapeutic strategies. Very impressive. So I guess the, the, the outlying question is, why can't our bodies just deal with this on its own? And what is either causing our bodies to not be able to handle disease on our own, mm-hmm. or what is affecting our bodies extramurally that we are compromised where it can't do that to begin with? Right. Well, so actually, uh, most people 
who don't get cancer, um, they, they don't present with the disease. Their cancer cells are rising in the body all the time. I mean, a, a few mutations, you know, and there you go. Um, but the immune system is, in healthy individuals, is able to see the cancer as foreign, um, much in the way it would see a cold virus or a bacteria. And it mounts an, an attack against that and destroys the cancer cells before they have a chance to take root in the body and form tumors and then become life-threatening. Understood. Yeah. All right, so let's get to Alexis here. You are part of the CRI and this Young Philanthropists Council, correct? Yes. Um, Explain talk to us about what that is. That is a group of young professionals who do not work for the Cancer Research Institute. They just donate their time to raise money for the CRI as well as funds for CRI. Um, it's a nonprofit organization, so, of course, they have a board of trustees um, that do the same thing. We're just the young professional group, and we're about 20 people who all live in New York City um, and, you know, do various sort of social media campaigns, fundraising campaigns, host a lot of, um, you know, fun fundraising party events, get the young kids drunk, spread the message of CRI. Yes. Young we know kids. all about that. Well, the young, you seem you know, to like it. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> young kids, it's it's hard to get their attention sometimes. So what's Not the age young. range? What's the average? 21 and over. Yeah. <laughs> well, clearly. <laughs> Our group is basically 24, uh, I think it's up to like 35 years, but 24 to 35 years old. And getting people to listen to, you know, the message of CRI is sometimes hard when you're having, when they're, when they're our age, I think it's harder to spread the message. So the drunken parties, of course, is just to bring them through the door right? Um, and get them to listen to the CRI mission and how important it is. All right, so this is clearly uncool, right, compared to, like, Miley Cyrus and all the crap that's out there. How do you retain them? How do you get them to care about this? Or are they already immunocompromised or have, have a family experience and are in this because for personal reasons? Well, when I, when I, was, um, it was, I was 25 years old and I found CRI, I immediately wanted to get involved because of, because of what they represented. I thought it was such an interesting science. I had never heard of immunotherapy. And I thought the mission was incredible. So we started the Young Philanthropist Council back then um, in 2008. And bringing people to the events and explaining what immunotherapy is is very intriguing to people. It's this new science. It's, it's I hate to use the word, but trendy, you know, now to know what this, you know, the future of cancer is going to be. So people who come to the parties, come to the events, support CRI and our age group, really just want to be part of, you know, the new science, the groundbreaking research, and CRI is the front runner of it. I mean, no one, no one has had the 60 years experience they have in cancer immunotherapy. Right. I think when they hear stories of survival, like Emily Whitehead, and she's just one story among an increasing number that we're seeing now that um, scientists are learning how to best apply this technology to fighting cancer. And, and when they hear that, you know, for instance, uh, a new combination of two, two antibodies. Antibodies are, are a type of protein that's produced by B cells in your immune system. And um, what, what they found is by combining these two antibodies that both take the breaks off the immune system, um, you can get dramatic reductions in tumors. So, um, for instance, in melanoma, patients who were treated at the optimal dose, um, more than half of them had significant, rem like 80% remissions and more. And the great thing about immunotherapy, and this is what really differentiates it from chemotherapy and radiation, is with chemotherapy and radiation, it's only working when you're being treated, right? Um, immunotherapy lasts 
for a very, very long time because you train the immune system to fight cancer and your immune system retains memory. Just like when you get vaccinated as a kid um, against measles, mumps, rebellion, your, your immune system remembers that. Once you train a person's immune system to recognize and attack cancer and once you take the breaks off that so you can allow that immune response to happen, that person's going to have durable protection for years and years and years. And this is why, for the first time in our 60-year history, we are using the C word. We are saying that we are getting close to real cures, because that's what a cure looks like, right? Your cancer just doesn't come back. Well, I agree. I, I, this is not a question of prevention or risk reduction. This is for people who have it. Right. This right. is yeah. therapeutic. Yes, exactly. Right. So what role does eating Twinkies have <laughs> if you get cancer or you have cancer and you're still eating Twinkies? Do you work with the oncologist and the, the, um, the treatment strategies with nutrition as well? Is there a, a um, sort of a, a, a biological component to what you eat that helps or hurts this process. Yeah, so not our organiz our organization doesn't look. By the way, Twinkies are not that. a sponsor. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I think that all depends on where a patient is treated and, you know, what kind of doctor and, and health team that they have working with them. I think diet and nutrition are obviously important things, exercise important, um, and, and all of these things play a role. I think one of the big misconceptions is when people hear immunotherapy, they think, oh, if I, that must mean if I take some vitamin C and some zinc, I'm going to make my immune system strong, and then I'm not going to get cancer. And that's, that's not the case. I mean, extremely healthy people still develop cancer, and that's because cancer is like, it's an insidious thing, right? It, 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 it finds ways to circumvent your immune system. It, it shuts it down. Uh, and so y you need something like a therapy, like the therapies we're seeing coming out now to help restore that balance. But just eating, eating well and, and taking vitamins, it, it, it's not the same thing. I think that's an important thing. That's, right. not, that's not necessarily what we're looking at. We're looking at just what's happening in the body. So, so is the future where we all become Logan, Wolverine, where our body just heals itself because we're inoculated with a cancer immunization thing at birth. Um, that that is one 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 way the future can go. Um, there's definitely a lot of interest in getting to preventative vaccines. Um, we have those for virally caused cancers like HPV, which causes head and neck and and uh, cervical cancer. Uh, you can get vaccinated against that that virus so you don't develop that that cancer later in life. But um, kind of more more broad vaccinations that can prevent patients. That, that's still very far off in the future because I don't think we fully understand yet all the different ways that cancer can arise and all the different ways the immune system can recognize cancer. So not so, yet, but possible. So what are the real success stories? Well, um, besides the, the girl. Yeah, so uh, actually on our website, cancerresearch.org, you can view, uh, you can read stories, and we have videos telling stories. So there's this woman, Sharon Belvin, um, who, who had melanoma. She was only 22 years old, and she had just finished college, and uh, she thought she had a, 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 a lung infection. She thought she had, like, pneumonia or something, and she, she kept coughing and everything. It took, it took a very long time, but doctors finally figured out that she had stage 4 melanoma. So melanoma is a very deadly form of skin cancer. Um, it's easily treatable when it's caught at stage 1, but once it progresses, it becomes harder and harder to treat. And um, this is a disease for which, like, chemotherapy is just, they don't, they don't really work. They're not very effective. They, right. don't, they don't cause, you know, they don't extend patient life, right? So she, uh, 
She enrolled in a clinical trial of an immunotherapy at Memorial Sloan Kettering right here in New York City. Um, her doctor was Dr. Jed Walchuk. He's like a superstar of immunology and immunotherapy. Um, they treated her with the, this first, the very first, th I talked earlier about things that take the brakes off the immune system. It was the very first drug like that, which uh, was created by our Scientific Advisory Council director too. So we're very, we're very proud of him for that. Treated her, her tumors just melted away, melted away completely. She has since gone on to get married. She's had two wonderful children. Um, she, she lost, I don't know, tons of weight and now is running marathons. Like it's completely transformed her life. And I think that's, that's just one example. And we're seeing so many more stories like that. So, so how old is she now? Yeah. I think she's 26, 27 probably. All right, let's, so let's talk reality then, implementation and cost. Well, um, cost is a... And adoption. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, those are all... <laughs> that's that's <laughs> a lot. Begin? Yeah, so let's talk about cost, right? Because that is a hot-button topic right now. Um, these immunotherapies are very expensive. You know, you can get a, a round of uh, Provenge vaccine um, in the tens of thousands of dollars. This this um, this antibody that I talked about that takes the brakes off, that's like $90,000 for a course of treatment. Like, who has the money for that, right? So there's a lot of discussion going on between the, the payers, the, the insurers, and and the pharmaceutical industry to try and get this to and patient advocacy groups are also out there on the front lines trying to get these drugs to patients um, to get over these hurdles. So cost is a big thing. Um, it gets even more complicated because now we're finding that the best treatments are those that you combine. So you're taking drug A, drug B, drug C, combining them in the right way. So suddenly you're paying three. You know, so there's a lot of a lot of stuff that needs to happen. There's a lot of dialogue that needs to happen around that. Um, I think nobody wants a situation where there's a cure and uh, patients can't get access to it because they can't afford it. I can't think of a greater injustice, right? That, that would just be infuriating. Well, that would be um, uh, the Matt Damon space movie. I'm not familiar with that. You know, the, uh, Kenny. Armageddon? No, no, the one, Matt Damon, the one we just <laughs> yeah. talked about. Elysium. Oh, Elysium. Elysium. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, oh, like, yeah. Wait, Ben Affleck? If that movie was yeah. anything but a metaphor for exactly what you're talking totally, about. Totally, yeah. totally. And there's, you know, that's all, yeah, yeah, that, that's a huge issue. Now, adoption's another issue because a lot of your regular community oncologists aren't trained in immunotherapy. They, it's a brand new, like the first immu active immunotherapy was approved only in 2010. The next one was approved in 2011. So this is really new stuff. And th doctors are not comfortable always trying, treating their patient with something that they don't understand. Everyone understands how chemo works. I mean, we've, we've, got, we've seen it, right? And how it doesn't work, I should say, too, in, in some cases. Um, but immunotherapy, for some reason, is... Um, they're they're just there's a big learning curve right now out there, and I know that there's a we're doing work on that. There are other organizations. Um, there's a society of of professional immunologists that's out there to try to bring this to the broader oncology community so that doctors understand this. And on top of that, patients need to know about this. There, um, I, I heard this like really terrible story where um, patients with uh, melanoma are not even being prescribed this this immunotherapy, even though it is now approved as a first-line therapy for advanced melanoma, because their doctors either don't know about it or they don't trust it. They're nervous about it. So there's a huge learning curve that, that we need, that we're all facing. So who are the real leaders in, in making sure that this gets sort of less stigmatized? 
Cancer Research Institute. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, like other major, uh, like Hopkins or MD Anderson or Seattle Children. Like, are you sure? Like, I mean, ASCO. I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, ASCO um, immunotherapy is coming to dominate that conference now. In fact, they project that within like six years, it will be almost all you know immunotherapy. That's 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 how radical the shift is that we're seeing. Um, hospitals have adopted uh, a lot of the major treatment centers around the country have adopted immunotherapy. They've made it a centerpiece now because it is one of the first real breakthroughs we've had in cancer treatment in 60 years. You know, so um, they want to be on this. They, they, we are partnering with them to fund the research that's happening there, and we are bringing more clinical trials to patients um, through through a clinical trial program that we have called the Clinical Accelerator. All right, so Alexis, we've been quiet. <laughs> <laughs> he speaks really well. No, he does. He does. So do you. I, I speak more about the youth group and, you know. I found the stupid cancer at the age of 36, mm-hmm. and I was diagnosed at 21 years old, and I wanted to build an, a national patient advocate organization for the next generation that was not about disease, that was about lifestyle, entitlement, empowerment, and community that nothing else in this country was doing. And it was a great idea at the time, and who knew 10 years later it would work. So here we are today, and I'll be 40 next year. I'm aging out of my own organization. Oh, we're, the, we're the same age. I'm happy to be turning 40 because I'm still here, but at the same time, you know, I hire people that are a lot younger than me to kind of keep me somewhat relevant, and I say somewhat in quotes. But to, to remember what it's like to talk to millennials about disease and their general agnostic attitude towards you know, self-risk, and why do young adults get cancer for different reasons and how doctors don't take I mean, this guy, Dan, was very lucky. He went two weeks, you know, from diagnosis to treatment. That I went eight months. Like, most people get diagnosed at stage four in this country as young adults. So my question is, how do you maintain relevance to the younger millennial community about a situation that they might find cool and not, not the booze issue, but is there a pragmatic retention that they would have for this? Well, I think that more and more we are at this this age group knowing people our own age with cancer. And when you were growing up, it was kind of, oh, my grandmother has cancer, my, my aunt has cancer. And now, I mean, my, my best friend, um, her husband had testicular cancer in 2010 and is luckily very healthy today. Um, but I think it's just this... The, the shift between thinking it's a kind of an older person's disease and a problem to being, oh, my best friend had, had cancer. We have two people on um, the Young Philanthropist Council who have had cancer and have, are now healthy. I think it's just the change in, in, in the way you're looking at this. It's, it's, it affects everyone and affects people at different ages. And as soon as you start seeing that, you know, at this age, you want to you want to dive in. You want to learn more. You want to you want to familiarize yourself with what's out there, and the Cancer Research Institute does an amazing job of you know ha- having us, our age group, you know work with them, spread spread their message to people our age as well as you know the board of trustees, like I said before, who do that for the adult age group. I think they get it too. When when you say you know it's 
it's the immune system stupid. Like that's a pen right. that we wear. Um, and Which people love. They love it, right? Um, the one thing that I've always gotten when, when I interact with the young philanthropists is um, when I ask them what, what excites you about our organization and our mission, and they say that it just makes sense that you're using your own immune system. Like, why didn't we think of this before? And actually, there's a long story there. They did think of it, but it just took a long time to get to the point where we can get them to work now. Um, but but they, they get it. They get, they get the immune system. They love the idea of empowering a patient to fight like the when when someone gets cancer it's like their bodies betrayed them right and they they can that causes all kinds of uh, of emotions um but here's something where you're not just like dumping chemicals into your body you're not just blasting it with radiation you're using your own immune system to fight the cancer and that's very empowering right and also when uh someone you know at a young age gets diagnosed with cancer if they take a treatment like uh radi radiology or um, chemotherapy, the rate of them, you know, I'm sorry, the percentage, the odds that they have um, another form of cancer or the cancer comes back 20, 30 years later is very high, whereas immunotherapies, the rate is much, much lower because you're building your system, you're boosting your system, you're not trying to, you know, kill the bad and the good cells within you. So when you're young, it's it's better to build, build yourself up than tear yourself down. Right. So I have one question. Um, is my mic on? Yep. Yeah. About, okay. So during immunotherapy, um, just what are the like practical effects like on the body when you are being treated with immunotherapy? Is it similar to like the effects of chemotherapy and radiation? Is it more gentle on the system? Like how how does the body react to the initial treatment? So it depends on the type of immunotherapy that you get. Um, generally, it's it's quite different. Um, patients who who've I've, who whom I've spoken with have said that it was absolutely it was like a cakewalk compared to chemo. Mm. Um, so, for instance, if you get a vaccine, vaccines tend to be, like, the, the only side effects you're going to get is, like, maybe a mild chill, a slight fever, right, you know, right. soreness at the injection site, and then that's it, and you go home, you mm -hmm. know, you're not, you're not stuck in a hospital for, mm -hmm. you know, however many days, um, you don't feel like crap, um, mm -hmm. you feel fine, actually. So yeah. that's, you know, that's vaccines. They're very, very safe. Um, there's, we just had some problems getting them to work, but I think now that we understand that it's, it's, you can't just stimulate an immune response by giving a vaccine. You also have to take those breaks off. That's very important. Um, other, other, other things like taking the breaks off, um, this, uh, this antibody, because you are taking the breaks off the immune system, there, you can be at risk for having an autoimmune reaction. So right. your own immune system can start attacking healthy cells. So um, when they first started giving this, they, they were seeing this in patients, like they were getting diarrhea and, and things like that. Um, but they've since found that they can control those side effects with, you know, steroid treatments that still don't hamper the immune system. And so basically you don't have those side effects. You don't have those risks. So even in those cases, it's very, you know, I wouldn't say safe, but mm -hmm. uh, there's always, I guess there's always a risk, right? But, right, right? but it's still not, you're still not having that, you know, soreness, sickness, nausea, yeah, so hair loss. You don't get any of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. We had a question from the chat room. Um, from Zach Cooper, are there any stats suggesting that age has an influence in immunotherapy response? Um, probably. I, I don't know what has what has been studied on immunotherapy effectiveness in, in older 
patients, but um, there is a lot of research on the effect of aging on the immune system. Um, same thing goes for people who are immunocompromised. For instance, if, they, if they've got HIV, um, a lot of them aren't eligible now um, for enrolling in, in clinical trials of an immunotherapy, but eventually we're going to get to that point where we can start testing these therapies in those populations. So I, I don't know a definitive answer on, you know, the effectiveness. I, I've, I've met patients in their 80s. I've met patients in their 20s. Um, and everywhere in between that immunotherapy has worked. Of course, it doesn't work for everyone, and we want to get to the point where it does work for everyone in all types of cancer, um, and that's, that's the work of the Cancer Research Institute. Uh, but, but, yeah, I don't, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure on, on the specifics on, on aging and effectiveness of immunotherapy. All right, because there's two sides, too. Where I, I spent 10 years in the agency world. I was a concert pianist. I got sick. I couldn't play again. I started working in the ed world. So when I'm approaching a science like this that clearly makes sense and people should pay attention to and why aren't they, you know, there's two sides. There's the here's the science, stupid, and then here's the public awareness about this. So what role do PAOs like ours, patient advocate organizations like ours, and what role do human beings have in just talking to their doctor about immunotherapy? It sounds to me as ridiculous as, oh, trials when there's 3% enrollment. How do you actually facilitate a meaningful dialogue about something that no one's talking about anyway. Well, that, that's, a, that's an initiative that several organizations, including ours, as well as in the pharmaceutical industry, um, are working to increase patient awareness, and I think patient advocacy groups are a big part of that. Um, we at the Cancer Research Institute are... We're at a point in our history where we are now interfacing with patients in a way that we didn't do before because we didn't have the therapies. So patients are very new for us as an organization, and it's, it's because the immunotherapy is very new for patients. So there's just got to be a lot of dialogue between us, patient advocacy groups, and the pharmaceutical industry, and government, and the regulators to get to build up the awareness, I mean, it helps that it's making major headlines in, you know, New York yeah. Times and Wall Street Journal, and um, it's on the news, you know, Brian Williams, and um, it, so it is slowly entering the kind of public consciousness, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done to get us there sooner. But this is an exciting time, because years ago, when I just became involved with CRI in 2008, it did not have the steam that it has now, and so whatever, you know, has been CRI's work, as well as other organizations' work, Putting it in, you know, the, the the hemisphere, everyone is hearing this new buzzword. I mean, talking about it more and more is great, but it's already come so far. I mean, even in just, you know, the six years since 08. Right. I mean, I, I just can't get off the clinical trial adoption narrative because it's a huge subject for us. Like, we, we do conferences year-round. We do events year-round. Mm -hmm. The radio shows year-round. We push content year-round. And the hot-button issues are fertility, trials, uh relationships and dating, you know, like all the lifestyle stuff, but and then um, immunotherapy, genomics, and the environment, like all these crazy things that you should be bugged about anyway when you're not sick. So there are all these in the digital health world, if you're familiar with the whole startup world in like Silicon Valley, there are all these like trial matching websites that are trying to somehow get doctors to be more aware of trials and patients to know that there's a website that they can search for trials. And is immunotherapy even in those databases? Yeah, we, we actually have a clinical trial finder at cancerresearch.org. Um, it's focused just on immunotherapy. So uh, someone who... But are you on clinicaltrials.gov? Well, all, all those trials are listed, yeah, okay. in clinical trials. And, in fact, our database pulls from that national, the NCI database. Good. Too. Good. So what's the future? 
what's the future? We're going to see immunotherapy becoming um, a, a treatment option for many more different patients, uh, different kinds of cancers, different groups of patients receiving this and benefiting from this and seeing durable cures. So I see from your bio that you are part of the American Express Nonprofit Leadership Academy. Does that mean you have nonprofit experience? Do I? Yeah, I've been there. I've been at CRI for 15 years. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean, I meant beforehand. Oh, uh, no, no. I was an actor before. Wow, okay. Yeah. So how'd that happen? Um, I was... Not uh, the actor part, the, the job part. Well, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> it's a... Um, I was temping at Cancer Research Institute um, just to, you know, make some ends meet. And I fell in love with the organization and its mission and the people there that I work with. And um, I also got tired of touring the country as an actor. That that can get very tiresome once, you know... Were you in hair on the bus? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it's one of my favorite musicals. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's how that happened. All right. So, nonprofit guy to nonprofit guy, biggest challenges you face? Um in my role as a, as a nonprofit, not salary. Um, biggest yeah. challenges you face. <laughs> well, I, I would say that you know the biggest challenges right now. Uh, it comes down to you know funding. Uh, that's that's just that's and that's true with almost every nonprofit organization. Um, right now, the science is at this place where it's just ready to explode. Um, but there's so much work that still needs to be done, and these you know clinical trials are very expensive, and funding research is very expensive. So we're we're always on the lookout for people who uh, really recognize that there's something new and powerful at work here in immunotherapy. And we get people like Sean Parker, for instance, just gave us a, a million dollars. Um, he's extremely interested. Say hi in for me. I will. <laughs> we're like that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, th you know, that, that's an example of someone who's very forward-looking, tech entrepreneur. He sees, he sees the future, and he right. sees that it's in immunotherapy. All right. So, so we just need more people like him. Well, clearly, <laughs> right. yes, yes. Uh, he's actually waiting outside right now. He's the oh, next good. guest on the show. <laughs> so how can people take an active role? What, what, would, what is your call to action for people or for you, Alexis? What is your call to action for members of the Young Philanthropists? Are you recruiting? What can they do? Meetups, social events, engagements? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah. You go ahead. Go ahead on that. Well, obviously to spread the message, like we're saying, to speak about it, to talk about it, to talk to your doctors, to talk to your family, to talk to your friends, to get in the conversation and talk about immunotherapy. We, um, the Young Philanthropists, take new members every fall. We're always looking for people to come to our events, you know, talk to us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, um, at CRIYP, at CRIYP. That doesn't roll off my tongue either. No, um, no. I mean, I'm not going with hashtags. We'll get to a new handle. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we're always wanting people to engage in the conversation with us and show their support for CRI as well as the Young Philanthropists by just talking to us. We're always, you know, through any of these social medias, even if I don't like hashtagging, um, you know, you can email, you can contact us, and we'd love you to come out and meet us and come to our events, learn more about CRI. The website was just revamped this year. Brian did an amazing job, and it's really interactive and engaging, and it has so much information that you know maybe one email can't do. But if you want to, you want to sit down and read something. Brian created something really user friendly and incredibly dense with amazing information. 
Yeah, I would say that would be my call to action for your listeners um, to learn about cancer immunotherapy. And I think our website is a great resource for that. Uh, we've got neat infographics that are really easy to understand. Um, it's broken down. Um, and then if you have a specific type of cancer and you're curious to know if there's an immunotherapy available for you, uh, we do have cancer-specific information on the website also. Uh, you know, immunotherapy, it's it's a broad thing because it applies to all cancers. It, it, that's where it's going to go, right? Everyone is going to be able to be treated with immunotherapy pretty much. Um, but we still find that people are very interested in the cancer that they themselves are dealing with. And so we want to provide them the information that way. So okay. cancerresearch.org. And one more question I was going to ask before. Um, has this any application to other diseases or is it only for cancer? Well, the work that we do, uh, because we do so much basic immunology work also, because in order to get to the place where you have treatments um, that mobilize the immune system, you've got to understand the immune system. So in the course of that, we've learned an awful lot that applies to all kinds of, uh, of diseases, also infectious diseases, autoimmune diseases. Um, all, all of them have benefited from the work of our organization. Wonderful. Wonderful. Any other parting comments? I just think you guys are doing a great job. I'm really excited that young people facing cancer have a voice in you guys. Um, so just keep up the good work. Well, I think we can talk offline about a lot of cool integrative things we can do together. That'd be great. Great. With alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, we have been speaking with Brian Brewer, the Director of Marketing Communications, and Alexis Feldman, Chair of the uh, Young Philanthropist Council at the Cancer Research Institute online at cancerresearch.org. You guys Man. are like the first people on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a real pleasure talking with you, and all good stuff. Immunotherapy really is the future. My new, my new tagline for you is "Be Wolverine." Be Wolverine. I like it. All right. Like thank it. you. Thank you. Thank you. All righty. I'm gonna be Wolverine after the show. <laughs> <laughs> That's his new IPA, Wolverine. Okay. It is now time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show. Our 292nd broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick. That's stupid cancer. I'd like to thank our guests, Dan Duffy, Brian Brewer, Alexis Feldman, and from the couch, Hannah Hanson, Melinda Hood, and Brandon Lee. Next week's show, Stupid Cervical Cancer. Yes, January is Cervical Cancer Awareness Month, and we're shining a light on this horrible disease with advocacy leaders Tamika Felder-Campbell, founder of Tamika and Friends and Survivor.org, and Chandra Hall, Regional Director of the National Cervical Cancer Coalition Southwest Division. Survivor Spotlight on Suzanne Payne. Subscribe to our show anytime for free on iHeartRadio, iTunes Podcast, and Blog Talk Radio. Check us out anytime at stupidcancer.org or stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Annie Goodman, Kenny Kane, Maureen Sweet, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here next week live at 8 p.m. Good night, folks. Hey.